The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. All right, Craig, thank you. 506 on the Central Coast. It is Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. I'm Dave Congleton. Somewhere in this universe, my uh, late great science teacher, Dr. Steve Nelson, is grinning from ear to ear at the idea that his uh, least successful science student is about to embark on this interview. But it's a very important topic. Literally, we are talking about the future. You may have read about this. You may have seen the 60 Minutes episode. You may have heard an earlier show we we did on this. But last uh, December 5th, something huge happened up north at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And my next guest was part of that team. As we welcome to this broadcast, Dr. Marty Marinick. Dr. Marinick is an award-winning physicist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. He has a Ph.D. in nuclear engineering from UC Berkeley at Lawrence Livermore The doctor oversees development of computer models performed for the inertial confinement fusion ICF program up at Lawrence Livermore. We're going to be talking about fusion and we're going to be talking about the future. But why am I talking when Dr. Marinek is waiting to join us now? Doctor, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Dave. Thanks for inviting me on the show, and I appreciate your atten- your interest in this subject. Well, and thanks for joining, and the obvious thing to say, say at the beginning is congratulations to you and everybody involved in the project. How, how uh, have the last two months been since all this news broke and this initial success? How have you been feeling? How's the team been feeling? Well, I think we feel a, a sense of gra- of um, of 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 um, really um, happiness that we were able to get this done, done, able to produce this result as we promised we would, and uh, able to show that it's possible to create uh, fusion in the laboratory through fusion ignition. Uh, we certainly have noticed that it's received attention, and that's it's made a you know a, an impression upon us. Uh, the Secretary of Energy's announcement was really something we were looking for. We wanted to hear what she had to say, and I remember on that day um, there was uh, it was seven o'clock in the morning here at the laboratory uh, that they had that announcement playing on on various uh, television screens in the different auditoriums. And so I, I showed up at 7 in the morning, wanted to hear what she had to say. And it was a standing room only in that auditorium. And it was something that was kind of remarkable uh, because it was, uh, you know, not, not that often that the Department of Energy gets this much attention. Yeah. So um, it, was, it was a remarkable atmosphere that day. And uh, we were really pleased with what the Secretary had to say about what we had done. I don't want to circle back to that. But on a side note, Doctor, we should remind folks, a little bit about the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. This is a government lab, correct? Right. Lawrence Livermore Laboratory is one of the Department of Energy's 17 national laboratories, and it's one of the three national labs that are part of the National Nuclear Security Administration. So our lab was founded 
back in 1952. And I would say broadly that the lab's mission is to strengthen America's security through the development and application of world-class science and technology. So Lawrence Livermore helps make the world a safer place through its core mission, which is ensuring the safety, security, and reliability of the nation's nuclear stockpile, and more broadly, uh, through its efforts in nonproliferation, counterterrorism, energy and environmental security, providing intelligence and addressing chemical and biological threats. Mm. So we're located about 45 miles east of San Francisco. We have about 8,300 employees, which include um, chemists, physicists, engineers, um, and computational scientists and support staff. And so in addition to our main mission, we have various focused research areas, which include fusion research, climate science, advanced materials, manufacturing, biosecurity, and so on. Yeah. How long have you been at Lawrence Livermore, Doctor? So I, I just got my 30-year service award last week. So Congratulations. So years yeah. that I've been involved uh, in, uh, though I actually was involved back since 1987 when I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley. So I was a you know a summer summer employee at the, that time, but my it adds up to about thirty years as of uh, last week. And I was reading a little bit today. Um, I believe his name is Dr. John Knuckles. All the way back in the nineteen sixties, he argued that lasers could be used to do fusion. Am I correct on that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, John Knuckles was one of the pioneers in in inventing the whole idea of inertial confinement fusion. So. Uh, back in the late 1950s, he was thinking about how would you make a miniature fusion implosion to make a small amount of energy, controllable amount of energy. And it just turned out that in 1960 was when they invented the laser, and suddenly he realized, and other people realized, wow, you might be able to use one of these to drive an inertial confinement fusion implosion. This is one of these small capsules that we imploded. I'll say more about later. So he, he was actually one of the people that... Uh, was a pioneer and did some of the early calculations. And um, Knuckles is actually still here working at the lab. He's over 90 years old. Wow. And he said he's not retiring until we get ignition. So we're, we're really <laughs> happy now that we have that monkey off our back. That, uh, no, but seriously, we're, we're very, very glad to have him as a leader of the program. He actually helped to formulate the first, the, the uh, modern ICF program back in 1972. And one of the things he realized is that he needed specialized, sophisticated computer codes to model these targets, to design them. And so he started this whole competency as a significant effort in his program to develop these codes. And and I came along later, and, and I'm glad that that competency is there because it allowed me to, to make a career out of this. So I'm thankful to him indirectly for for that foresight. Yeah, I think he was completely right that computer modeling is very important for yeah. this field. And just to underscore for our listeners, the idea that you and other colleagues, you have been at this for a while. There has been a long-term goal to get to the point of December 5th. This is a long time right. coming. Exactly. I've, I've worked on this area of inertial fusion for 30 years, and John Knuckles, 60 years. We have some people in the program for 50 years who have still been at this. So it's, it's been a long effort of an, in, in, in building bigger and bigger lasers, and the NIF laser was constructed. I'll tell you more about that, but it was, it's our most recent and largest laser that, that produced this 
result on December 5th. So give me some leeway here, doctor. Let me see if I understand this correctly. And again, I hope Dr. Nelson, my former science teacher, is listening. It, it strikes me reading all this stuff that what you, collective you, were able to do involving fusion is that you were able for the first time to create more energy than you used in creating it. Am I even close? That's exactly right. Ding, ding, uh, ding, so, ding, ding. Uh, okay. <laughs> so what happened on December 5th? Maybe I should address that. Sure. So on December 5th, um, we did an experiment on the National Ignition Facility, which I'll say more about later, uh, which produced more energy using nuclear fusion than we put into that target with lasers. And so it was the very first time in history that anyone has done that anywhere, is to produce more energy with fusion than we put into the target. And people around the world have been trying to do that for over 60 years and have been making progress toward it. But what we did here at Lawrence Livermore was the very first time that we just demonstrated uh, what we call ignition, which is a propagating burn fusion burn, burning like the sun does, in a tiny target in our laboratory. So we created a miniature star, and we managed to produce more energy out of that than we put in, which is an important scientific milestone, because uh, it's it's a big a milestone on the way to making a lot more energy out of that yeah, target yeah. than we put in, which would have, you know, potentially important applications. I'm trying to remember the number of times. There were numerous attempts before this happened on December 5th. Do you happen to recall how many times you attempted this previously? Well, um, the way I think of it is we've been doing experiments since the NIF was completed over a period of years and learning from those experiments. Uh, our experiments, our theory, our computer models, and learning from that and uh, improving our targets, and I'll say a little more about later, hopefully, about how our computer models helped to guide the program to this success. Um, but it was a learning experience. It's a hard thing to do, and no one in the world's ever done it before. It's yeah, probably yeah. because it's so hard. Yeah. But we did uh, prove that, uh, uh, first of all, you know, our, our computer models were about right in terms of where ignition should occur, and and those models were used initially to help design the NIF computer models, and the fact you know that that what was required was baked into the facility with what we knew back then, so it, it's really good news that our computer models were about right. Hmm. But but then, if I were to come up tomorrow, could we replicate what you did on December fifth? Uh, not tomorrow, but we do have a shot on the schedule to try to replicate it. So okay. um, it turns out that we we get a limited number of shots on the NIF. Uh, which which is a, a national user facility. So we get a, a countable number of shots per year, and one of the shots we have planned is a repeat of that. That and I'm not sure exactly when it's scheduled, but it's coming yeah. up. All right. How so many... that's one of our goals is to repeat it. We are confident that we will repeat it. Yeah. Maybe not on a given shot, but we will repeat it again and again. We we are we believe that that will happen. How many lasers were involved? So let me, can I tell you a little bit about the National Ignition Facility sure. that, that, where this was done? Sure. Okay. So the National Ignition Facility is the world's largest and most energetic laser. It was built starting in the 1990s to study extreme states of matter that were previously found only in the center of large planets and stars and operating nuclear weapons. So it was here that the December 5th um, experiment was performed. So this, this building is the size of a football stadium, 
it has it's like the size of three football fields side by side in a ten stories hall, and that's what's required to house all the equipment. So the NIF has 192 laser beams, which together can generate 500 trillion watts. Wow! So that's equal to a thousand times the total power of the entire United States electrical grid for a brief moment. So it's a few billionths of a second. And the laser pulse that we shot that day was only seven feet long. That's how much light travels in, 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 in seven billionths of a second. And that's, that's how long it was, seven billionths of a second? Seven billionths of a second was the laser pulse that we used to heat up the target, and it burned in a much shorter time than that. Amazing. All right, uh, Doctor, let me pause and take a quick break. We are in conversation. A special guest, uh, Dr. Marty Marinick, is joining us from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, explaining to us the big scientific breakthrough, what has been called by several people as the most important scientific breakthrough thus far in the 21st century. Happened on December 5th, 2022. Your phone calls still to come. I'm Dave Congleton. We're live. We're local. This is Hometown Radio. You have landed on the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. We've got news at the bottom of the hour there. We'll start welcoming your phone calls for our special guest, Dr. Marty Mackinac. Uh, Dr. Mackinac is uh, with Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, part of the breakthrough team last December 5th uh, in terms of fusion and uh, the pursuit of fusion ignition in the lab. we got a couple text messages coming in on the Stolberg-Tatum line. Doctor, as we're back with you, question number one. Did the Institute for Theoretical Physics at UC Santa Barbara assist you in any way in this process? Um, me personally, in our computer modeling, I, I, I don't know. That wasn't the case. I can't say for sure if, 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 the, if the laboratory has any connection with them. We, we are part of a national program which involves universities across the country and, and other laboratories who are involved in this effort. So we do collaborate on various things. I, I don't know the answer to your question, but as far as the computer modeling that we did, uh, we, they, they were not involved in that. Fair enough. Um, second question. When you create a miniature star in the laboratory, you have a ball of plasma. Would the star have miniature flares coming off its surface like the sun does? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it, it's different in, the, in its structure than, uh, you know, that star is confined by gravity, and it has an atmosphere. So um, it doesn't look like that at all. So what we've done here is we've compressed this fuel, this little pellet, to a 1,000 times the density of water and a temperature of over 100 million degrees. So it, it's sitting there in the center of one of these capsules. Let me explain a little more about that. So we, sure. we have... Uh, in the experiment, we have a tiny cylinder, which is, think of it as like a small soup can, and we have two holes in the end. So it's, it's about a centimeter long. And then we put a peppercorn-sized capsule in the middle of that cylinder, and we fill it with deuterium and tritium, which are two isotopes of hydrogen, having one and two extra neutrons, respectively. Uh, and so what happens is these 192 laser beams, they enter each side of the can, and they illuminate the wall, the inside of that can, and produce X-rays. The X-rays heat up, heat up the outside of the capsule, which burns off, so that it's blowing off outward. And by the rocket effect, that causes this capsule to compress and implode inward. 
And so we need to do that to very high pressures and high densities, like I said. So we create a little hot, dense plasma in the center of it, which um, it doesn't really look like anything in the, in the, in the sky. I, we do simulations of them, and they're just small balls of hot gas, and we get over 100 million degrees, which is hotter wow. and denser than the center of the sun yeah. when we do this. Uh, and so um, on that, so it doesn't, it doesn't look the same is the answer. But I could go on and say, you know, we produced enough energy that day, uh, three megajoules, to boil about 10 kettles of water. Hmm. So that's how much energy we produced. Um, but it was produced in a very, very short period of time. Uh, and so the actual power that we generated was 45 quadrillion watts. So what is, what is 45 quadrillion watts? To put that in scope, if you take all of the sunlight that illuminates the moon, all of the sunlight that illuminates the moon, it's three times that. So for a brief moment, we generated three times all of the power of all the sunlight that illuminates the moon. So that's why we say we created a miniature star, because it created astronomical amounts of power for, for, for a brief moment. But the energy was, like I said, enough to boil 10 kettles of water uh, so that's how we say we created a star, but its structure is not really like, you know, like I said, it's hotter and denser yeah. than the center of our sun. So, Doctor, we're at the two-minute mark, what was your role? What was the role of your team in this whole process? So we specialize in computer simulations, and at a very high level, uh, we've developed a very sophisticated computer model uh, over 30 years, building upon work before us that. People use to design these targets. They use to simulate everything that goes on in the target that I just described in detail in three full three spatial dimensions using very powerful computers. So our models help them to, to design the targets to understand what the targets are doing and provide guidance for the program. And I would encourage people to go online. Uh, YouTube has several videos that they could see everything that you're explaining and what I'm trying to ask about, they can see it unfold and get a better sense of the process. You, right, am I correct on that, Doctor? Oh, yes. Yeah, we have some excellent videos that, that explain. If you go to lasers.lnl.gov, we have some excellent videos that explain how the laser works with an animation of how the lasers uh, shoot through the whole system. We have videos explaining what fusion is. Uh, so we have some lasers.lnl.gov is one of the, the websites, and um, also the laboratory's YouTube channel. Uh, also, you can find those videos maybe in a more convenient way. But I, I think you're, you're right. It, it's, it's one thing to talk about it, but actually see a video of it is much more, uh, much more uh, educational in some sense. And you addressed this already, but on the Stolberg-Tatum line, a listener just tuning in wanted to know how miniature the star was. So it started out um, like the size of a peppercorn, like two BBs, but it, it ended up uh, 70 microns. Uh, so that's about uh, 0.07 millimeters across. So it's uh, it's very tiny. Uh, we compressed it by about a factor of 30 in radius. Absolutely amazing. All right. Uh, smaller. We're off to California Headline News and ABC Radio News. Craig updates us with Time Saver Traffic and Weather Together. We'll continue our conversation about fusion ignition and what happened at Lawrence Livermore last December. We'll take your phone calls and read more of your text messages. You're listening to Hometown Radio.
This is the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. Let me reintroduce my guest. We are in conversation with uh, Dr. Marty Marinek. He is with the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. He has been there now for 30 years. He's got a Ph.D. in nuclear engineering from UC Berkeley. And he was uh, part of the team that made this important scientific breakthrough last December. As we continue the conversation, if you want to join us, please do. Always glad to take your phone calls and read your text messages, 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Those are the numbers that bring you to the conversation. And as we stressed before the break, I know some of the stuff gets complicated. You can just go on YouTube and there's all sorts of videos. There's the, uh, also the 60 minutes piece that Scott Pelley came out and interviewed several staff members. There is uh, any number of avenues that you can use to find out more information about this. So with all that in mind, Doctor, as we continue the conversation with you, for the layperson like myself, I salute you, I congratulate you, but I wonder what exactly does this mean to me? Well, what does it mean and why does it matter? So fusion ignition is really one of the hardest scientific challenges ever tackled, sort of like the Wright brothers' journey to flight and landing a man on the moon. So these kinds of problems are what propel humanity forward and lead to countless discoveries along the way. So this this particular breakthrough helps to underpin, underpin the safety and security of the United States and its allies and also serves is a first step of sorts in exploring a carbon-free fusion energy future. It also demonstrates U.S. leadership in science and technology. So let me make an analogy with the Wright brothers' first flight. Sure. I think that's a really appropriate one. It's a proof of principle. So the Wright brothers' first flight, it only covered 120 feet, but it opened the door to new possibilities. You know, by the 1920s, they were passenger aircraft. 44 years after their first flight, we had supersonic Airplanes, the first American, the first plane was an American plane to break the sound barrier. 66 years after their first flight, America landed a man on the moon. So what they did, the Wright brothers, was develop the science required. Then they developed the technology, the engines, the wings, the propellers, and they proved powered flight was possible. So I think here what we've done in a similar way is we've, we've developed an understanding of what's required to achieve fusion ignition in the lab. We've developed the technology to do it. And we've developed and proven for the first time that uh, fusion ignition in the laboratory is possible at the door to all sorts of new things and potentially fusion power in the future. All right, let's take a call. We've got uh, Eric in San Luis on KVEC. Hi, Eric. Hey, good afternoon, Dave. Hi, Eric. I just, more than anything, I just called to congratulate the good doctor and all the people at the lab. It's just absolutely remarkable what you did. Doctor, can you hear the caller? I, I did. I, yeah. I, I thank you. I appreciate the comment. Why is it so important for you, Eric? This has been a project that so many people have worked on for so long, and their team was absolutely committed to this, and they accomplished the uh, the task at hand. And what's on the horizon now is absolutely incredible also. Uh, I agree with you, Eric. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you for the guest. Hi, thanks for calling. 805-543-8830. But let me follow up on that, Doctor. Eric is saying he's excited for what is possibly on the horizon. Uh, Assuming we make these advances, whether it's 10 or 50 years down the road, what does Fusion offer? 
So fusion would have a lot of very attractive properties as an energy source. Uh, first of all, um, the fusion reaction that we're using makes no direct radioactive byproducts. So there's no high-level nuclear waste, nothing that you need to store away for generations. There is a neutron produced and helium. Helium is what you put in, in balloons, the same non-radioactive inert helium. Right. So there would be a small amount of, of activation of the structure by the neutrons, and you can make that structure out of what you want. So you, that would be a very small amount of radioactivity compared to what, uh, well, a very small amount that, that would be, uh, wouldn't require long-term storage. Um, the other, another advantage of fusion is, uh, unlike today's fission plants, you have to build in the safety by building these massive steel-reinforced concrete containments, multiply redundant safety systems, these really impressive systems they've engineered in to ensure safety. In fusion, we say that the safety is inherent because there's no inventory of, no large inventory of radioactivity to begin with. So it's much easier to design a fusion plant uh, to be inherently safe because you have a small inventory of tritium fuel, which you can keep that rather small. Also, fusion is very easy to turn off uh, because in a fusion plant, you'd be doing several of these implosions a second, and all you have to do is just stop doing the implosions, and it turn, it's very easy to turn it off. There's very little afterheat, so um, there's no danger of it melting. Hmm. Um, and the fuel for fusion is found in seawater. It's deuterium. And so, you know, a successful fusion plant would produce power around the clock, day and night, whenever you need it, and the fuel supply will last forever. 805-543-8830. Here's Stu in San Luis. Hi, Stu. Well, good afternoon, and uh, thank you to your guest for uh, appearing. Um, I, had a, I had a question about uh, the, what's produced besides the energy. Is, is it helium? So, right, the, the determined tritium reaction produces helium-4 plus a neutron. So it's inert helium and then the neutron. There are other so fusion we, reactions that we may try in the future uh, that, that are harder to do, so we're not focusing on them, but it's possible in the distant future that you could make a fusion reaction. There, there are fusion reactions that we could make go in the, in the distant future that produce zero radioactive waste. So that's a possibility in the distant future that also I think is another attractive potential, you know, for potential for fusion energy to, to, to deliver. Yeah. Stu? So, and would it, would it be producing commercially uh, viable uh, amounts of helium or other, other uh, molecules? Or, excuse me, atoms. Well, it turns out that the, um, if you had a full-size 1,000-megawatt fusion plant, that all of the fuel that you need, it, need for an entire year is a few hundred pounds. So it's not, okay. and not, not very much involved. And so it wouldn't, okay. you know, it's true that we would make helium, and helium comes from natural gas, but we wouldn't be making enough of it to make a difference because we only burn up a few hundred pounds of fuel a year in a fusion plant. But th there's the flip side of that is, is that you have fuel security, right? So you don't, you don't have to worry about, say, if your natural gas pipeline ruptures and suddenly you're out of fuel immediately, you can store up fuel for a fusion plant for, for a long time in the future and have that on site. So that's one of the other attractive features. So, you know, fuse, fusion power is a, is a way off just to be clear about that. What we've done sure. here is not fusion power. We've done a proof of principle, and the NIF was not designed to produce high rep rates or any such thing. But we, um, we are interested in sharing what we've learned 
with private companies that are interested in doing fusion. The DOE does not pay us to do fusion energy research on this facility, but there are companies interested in doing that. And so the lab is working in a close partnership for the, with the broader, broader community to implement a strategy to provide our unique capability. So we, we've, what we've produced is an understanding of what's required to make the, the plasma ignite. And that's the fundamental basis for fusion energy uh, to understand is perhaps the hardest thing, is to understand how do you assemble the fuel and make it burn. But there's a lot of engineering that has to go into a fusion plant I can talk more about. And so we've built a framework here. Uh, we've developed, it's called an IFE collaboratory, uh, which is a consortium of DOE national labs and other funded institutions. And we're interested in facilitating public-private partnerships and collaborations. And the basic idea is to help these American companies to advance and to succeed in this growing industry of researching fusion energy, basically we want to try to shorten the period between now and when fusion energy is a reality. Yeah. Stu, anything else? Well, no, but I'm very amazed and very thankful for your work. Yeah. Thank you, Stu. Appreciate the call. Bye -bye. Appreciate the comment. 805-543-8830. Well, let me piggyback on what uh, Stu just asked. Given the success in December, Doctor, are you attracting more interest from private industry? Is Lawrence Livermore getting more phone calls lately? Um, I'm not sure I know the answer to that because the phone calls don't come to me. They That's come to enough. the collaboratory. That's right. There is certainly an interest in using our computer codes. And I, I'd like to say a little more about that because that's, a, that's sure. an in interesting branch of science myself uh, about the computer codes. I don't know if, if we're up against a break now. No, but, uh, go ahead. What we have to offer them is our modeling capabilities, and there's certainly interest in that. There was interest before December 5th, but it's probably even greater now because our model more or less worked in terms of guiding us to the right place. So uh, our model, our, our computer model, it's really uh, something that I started 30 years ago with another gentleman here, but we have a team, a whole team of folks that are working on it, a very experienced, very capable team of code developers who have developed really state-of-the-art simulation capabilities in our code, which is called Hydra. And our team members all have doctoral degrees and a lot of expertise in the uh, physics of ICF. And we're continuing to prove the, prove the code even today. And so the code models really all of the physical properties in the target that I described, simulating the full duration of the experiment. We also include various state-of-the-art libraries, such as equations of state opacities and nuclear cross-sections that were developed by other groups across the lab. And the code is it's massively parallel. So let me explain what I mean by that. So it, it runs on massively parallel computers, so it can run big problems. So the term massively parallel refers to computers that have a very large number of processors which can work together to solve big problems. And so what happens is each one of the processors works on its own small piece of the problem, and occasionally the processors communicate information to one another. But together, they're able to solve a much, much bigger problem. And so this whole, uh, whole field of, of high-performance computing and massively parallel computers is something our lab excels at, something we've been pushing the boundaries of. And, and being able to simulate things in a more realistic manner has really helped us to understand how, what's happening in these targets and I think really helped us to get to this milestone, helped to guide the program. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Marty Marinek from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory talking about fusion and the important scientific breakthrough 
that the team achieved in early December. At the beginning of the conversation, Doctor, you mentioned the visit by the Secretary of Energy, Granholm, and how excited everybody was trying to anticipate her reaction. What was her reaction, and what's the consequence of that visit? Well, she she actually made uh, made the announcement in Washington, I should say, uh, but we were watching it on television screens around broadcast, rebroadcast around the lab. So okay. it was a virtual visit, if you will. But she was certainly talking to our employees. Um, she said, well, she called it one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century, and uh, we we were really glad to hear the positive comments that she and others in Washington made regarding this work. Um, Were you you worried that she wasn't going to support you? No, uh, but um, the Department of Energy is a big organization, and we're just one part of one laboratory, and, you know, so uh, one of the 17 labs. So, you know, we're not used to this amount of attention. But she certainly generated a lot of attention. On that day, we noticed that the uh, her, her announcement really was hitting the news wires all across Europe and Asia, and really this announcement went around the world, and we were thankful for that. And um, and I, someone from our public affairs office has summed up all of the clicks on news articles on the Internet that relate to this, and it's in the billions. So actually, the number of clicks that have happened on news articles relating to this event is close to the number of people on Earth. That's pretty impressive. All right, Garth is in Atascadero. Hi, Garth. Hey, David. Hi, Doctor. Hi, Garth. Um, doctor, from, from my own research, um, um, I've come to the conclusion um, that only 100 times, or actually it used 100 times more energy at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory uh, than was produced. So calling this a net energy gain, I think, is a, is a misnomer. Um, from my reading, lasers pumped in 2.05 megajoules of energy, and about 3.15 came out. So... Um, and that doesn't take into account the 192 lasers that consumed about 400 megajoules in the process, and also the equipment and running the facility as a whole. So to call this a net energy gain, I think, is a misnomer. Let him respond, Doctor. Sure. Well, what I said, I tried to be careful, is we got more energy out of the plasma than we put in with lasers. Right. So, uh, that, so we, that is what we call a net energy gain from the plasma. But you are correct that we had to use more energy on the NIF, uh, quite a bit more, to generate that power. So, so the fact of the matter is that NIF was not designed to be a power plant, and the laser technology on NIF was from the 1980s, right? So we use what are called flash lamps, which are a very inefficient method of generating the, the light needed to, ex- to excite the laser medium. And so we used about 300 units of energy to excite those flash lamps and run the laser to produce the two units of energy, which produced three units. That said, um, I still stand by the statement that we got more energy out of the plasma than we put in with the lasers, which is the first time that's happened, and it's an important milestone. Going forward, mm-hmm. there are much more efficient lasers today than we had on the NIF. If you use a modern diode pump solid-state laser, the wall plug efficiency is about 20%. So instead of using 100 units of energy, use a few units of energy to drive that same thing. Also, it's possible with these targets to get much larger gains out of the target than we've gotten, and that's where we're taking the research going forward. So we've hit the milestone where we produced more energy from the target than we used to heat the target, and that's what we're claiming. 
and uh, we can we can get much more energy out of these targets in the future, and that's part of where we're going in the future at this laboratory. And this, this device is to increase the target gain. Uh, so for a for a power plant, you'd want target gains of about 20 to 50, or maybe even 100. And we had 1.5, um, and we'd like to push that higher, maybe uh, several several times higher on the NIF. We'll see. But uh, the, the NIF is not a power plant. But for you know, you would need a somewhat larger laser and a higher target gain for a power plant, something like 50 from one of these targets. So the basic science to do that is the same. It's just pushing the physics a bit farther than we've done. So yeah. I agree that the NIF did not create net energy that day, but we produced more energy in the plasma than was used to heat the plasma with lasers, and that's what I was trying to be careful to say. Yeah, Garth? Mm-hmm. Well, also from my reading, uh, you know, I, I've, I've read that in our lifetimes um, there will be no meaningful energy produced, you know, as far as stopping uh, global climate change um, from this from this technology, um, considering that 2050 is the, the point where we need to go to zero emissions, um, this would de- be developed at any mer- um, meaningful purpose. This would be developed way after that. So I think there's a, another nefarious um, thing for the development of that, this, and I, I believe it's for U.S. nuclear weapons. Okay. And, and um, there's a lot of agreement of that in the scientific um, community. You want to comment on that, Doctor? Well, as we've said, one of the purposes of our laboratory is to safeguard the nation's security by underpinning the safety and reliability of nuclear weapons. And so the the NIF is a multi-purpose facility, and it is used by various people around the country, including the weapons program here at Livermore. And so um, these experiments are, are useful to them, and producing ignition is useful to them as well, and it helps to underpin the understanding of our stockpile and signal to our adversaries that we know what we're doing. But as I've explained earlier, we are working, uh, we've always had as a secondary reason for building this energy. That, that was always an interest, that was always the purpose of, of trying to get ignition. And as I've explained earlier, we are serious about wanting to work with these private companies and share what we've learned to help them to accelerate the development of fusion energy. I don't know how long it will take. It might take decades, but I know we need to try. And I think the benefits are so so great. You know, uh, the world doesn't stop in 2050. We, we, if it takes that long, it will still be a great, it will still transform human history if we succeed in, in developing a successful fusion power industry. All right, we'll leave it at that. Gartha, uh, thanks for checking in. Uh, and I just want to uh, stress, and we've mentioned this a couple of times tonight, no one is saying that fusion is going to come along and this is going to be an over uh, overnight solution. We're talking about decades. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. Doctor, it's probably not going to happen in your lifetime. But it sounds like what happened in December was an important step forward in which to build. Right. It was an important scientific milestone, and it signals that we have the understanding. It happened almost 80 years to the day after Enrico Fermi and Arthur Compton uh, produced the first fission, controlled fission reaction, December 2nd, 1942. Uh, They produced the first controlled fission reaction, and 15 years later, the United States built the first commercial nuclear fission power plant in Shippingport, Pennsylvania. So this is, a, I think, a similar kind of milestone. That started the atomic age. This, this signal that we were able to produce 
fusion ignition in the laboratory, something that can produce a lot of energy. And it is a, a milestone, of, I think, of similar significance. Uh, almost 80 years to the day after uh, Enrico Fermi and Arthur Compton first did it with fission. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mayor, we uh, certainly appreciate your time. And uh, if people didn't hear the whole conversation, podcast will be up shortly. Uh, so uh, thank you, Dr. Marinek. Is there anything you want to say in closing? I got about a minute for a final thought. Well, I, I appreciate you having me on today and giving a chance to describe um, some of what we did. I appreciate the interest in our topic. Um, uh, I think it's an exciting time in fusion research, and I think uh, we have we were optimistic here at the lab that we can produce higher target gains than we already have. We have plans to upgrade the NIF to higher energy and push that further. So as a proof of principle, we've met the goals of NIF, and we want to push it further to help understand the physics physics relevant to fusion energy, physics relevant to the various applications of ignition. And so it's an exciting time moving forward. And, and we are hiring people at the lab, uh, various competencies uh, that, you know, you can go to jobs.lnl.gov. And if you see something there that appeals to you, uh, we are hiring. I might have to consider that. All right, doctor, keep up the good work. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. I'm Dave Congleton. And this is Hometown Radio. Off we go to ABC Radio News. Craig updates us with time saver traffic and weather together. Then film critic Derek Ferguson, in honor of Valentine's Day, picks his favorite romantic movies of all time. I bet some of your favorites are on the list as well. Stick around and find out. I'm Dave Congleton. Happy Valentine's Day. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kbec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.